What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Jake Kabala is a managing director at Circle Up Jake joined Circle Up in 2016 after nearly a decade at Park Hill Group, a leading global asset advisory and fundraising firm and former advisory division of Blackstone. Prior to Park Hill Group, Jake spent three years at Lehman Brothers covering institutional clients. Jake holds an MBA from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania and a BA from the University of San Francisco. Looking to receive 20% off the brand that Men's Health says has the training short of the year? That brand is 10,000. Head to 10,000.cc forward slash WGYT and you get 20% off. Yes, 20% off your entire order. This brand is my favorite when it comes to athletic apparel. They're your go-to short for Metcons, high-intensity interval training sessions, short runs, and anything else you can think of. Comfortable and lightweight with an optional built-in liner, the interval short was created with versatility and mobility in mind. I just picked up a pair and I am absolutely loving it. Head to 10,000.cc forward slash WGYT, and you've got 20% off your entire order. Jake, welcome to What Got You There. How are you today? I'm doing well. Thank you very much for having me. Yep. No, I'm looking forward to diving deep with you, hearing more about you, the company you're working with, Circle Up. But we, we need to get the listeners warmed up. I want to uncover what your morning routine is like. Is there any techniques or strategies you've implemented on a daily basis? <laughs> sure. Yeah, happy to start there. So um, I think I read that you're a college athlete, so maybe you'll appreciate this, but I love to try to stay fit and exercise as much as I can um, during the week. I, I don't do that just for the sake of being fit, but more just because I find that when I do that consistently, I just feel better, I much sharper throughout the day. So I like to do that, but also I have two young kids at home, so my life has changed around that routine, so I have to start and do it as early as possible. So when I get the chance, it's usually 5.30 in the morning. I'll go a couple of days a week, three or four days a week, and, and start there. A lot of people, when they go and exercise or listen to music, I always try to listen to a podcast. So there's a couple of podcasts I really like, like Investor's Field Guide with Patrick O'Shaughnessy, Andreessen Horowitz. Now that I'm on your podcast, I'll, I'll have to start listening to yours. Um, and I just try to pick up some interesting topics, whether it's on investing or data science or another part of the world that I think is is particularly interesting. Yeah, no, the Investor Field Guide, Patrick's podcast is unbelievable for anyone who hasn't listened to that yet. Yeah, yeah, I love it. So my, my partner, Ryan, was on it recently. He gave a great podcast the following week, Cliff Asness, who's one of the pioneers of quant, which is a, an area where we're focused, was on and, and was talking about some of the things that are happening in, in that industry. Also, he does a lot on uh, blockchain. So uh, another company I really like, um, Numerai, Richard Cray was on there talking about what they're doing, which is, is another interesting part of things that are happening in finance. So I, I, I like that. And um, Andreessen Horowitz's podcast is, is fantastic as well. So I, I usually listen to those. Those are the two that I go to a lot too. In terms of your consumption of, of new material and your ability to learn, is there anything else besides podcasts? Are, are you big into books or with the, with the two kids in the job, you're a little bit too busy for that? Yeah. So on a, on a regular basis, uh, my daily reads are things like Axios, Pro Rata with Dan Primack. I'll, I'll listen, to, uh, I'm sorry, I'll read that 
every day. And that's just a great place to get just industry news on a variety of topics. So you might hear the latest on what's going on with Uber's IPO or more specific to my industry today. It was announced that Catterton is buying Cholula hot sauce for all you EU hot sauce folks out there. Uh, so I'll read interesting news that's happening there in the world of tech or in, and private equity and just deals that are happening. I also love Medium. So I'll read like a daily digest on Medium. So that's a great place to get updates on data science. So I think this morning I read uh, an article. It's like a really quick read on selecting the best machine learning algorithm you're focused on a regression problem with different trade-offs and pros and cons um, around the model selection. And I thought that was pretty interesting. So just try to stay up to speed on, on reading stuff like that. I, I find that I don't have a lot of time to get really deep into books. Um, I try to pick up one or two here and there, but I don't spend a ton of time on that. I just find that I often will pick them up and then put them down before I get to the end. So I don't don't tend to do a lot of um, deep book reading. Your time is valuable. It's hectic. You have a lot going on. How do you divide up your day or are you kind of not in control of that? I'm interested in understanding how you find the white space in, in different trends and, and the technology you, technology you deal in. How much time do you schedule for free space just to think? Yeah, I usually try to block like an hour at the beginning of the day where I'm just consuming different content where it's just like an opportunity to think and just focus on information that is continuous learning. And then the rest of the day, I frequently just lose control because I have a lot of meetings. You're getting inundated with a ton of emails. It's just a really, really busy time. And I'm usually doing that until I pass out at the end of the day. It's just, uh, you know, a lot of meetings and a lot of emails, and a lot of phone calls. So that's um, frequently what ends up happening to me. But I find that if you don't, in, in my seat, if you don't clock that one hour at least a day just to focus on the stuff that you find is most interesting and maybe, um, you know, the, the stuff that you want to learn, um, where it's just for the sake of learning and getting better, which I think is really important. If you don't focus on that, then you just don't do it. And you'll go a whole week and you'll realize that you didn't learn anything new other than the stuff that's required for your job. And so I, I really try to, to make that a point. Yeah, it's a reoccurring theme with many of the titans in their industry to blocking out that free time. You mentioned the meetings. You're bouncing back from meeting to meeting. How do you stay composed in between the different meetings? So say one's got terrible news. The next one, you're looking at a new company you're thinking about. How do you, how do you maintain your composure? Yeah, the main thing that has been always one of my main, um, I guess, components of the secret sauce of doing that for me has just been to, to be really prepared. And to try to separate those meetings out. So I have a lot of meetings and a lot of calls that go on throughout the day. And the night before, I'm always looking into what those are and what the goals are of those meetings and spending a lot of time to just get overly prepared. So when you go into that meeting, you know what you're trying to get done. And if you've been doing it long enough, you, you've had a lot of failures um, and you had a lot of meetings that go really bad and you just keep rolling and going to that next meeting, being prepared and, and move on. 
We just had on John Chambers, the most recent episode, former CEO of Cisco. That was his number one bit of advice. Be prepared for every meeting you're going in. You clearly have thought about what your secret sauce is in understanding that, that you must be prepared. What else, what other skills do you possess that you've identified are your strong points? Yeah, I would just say just to stay really current on everything that matters for your particular role. So for me, it's consumer, it's data science, it's private equity. So you just have to be really up to speed on what's happening in different industries. You have to know all of the different people that move the needle in those different spaces, have great network in those different spaces. So you can utilize that for credibility or to, to help answer a question that you maybe don't have the answer to, to be able to, to reach out to people that maybe have a, a unique viewpoint that, that you can rely on. So being really up to speed, um, you know, always, I, you know, there's no, nothing magical to this, but uh, for me, it's always just been uh, working harder than, than the next person out there. So I, I've always kind of prided myself on that, just outworking, um, your competitor. So if it's another company that you're, um, or another firm you're trying to beat to a deal or, or to have a better pitch, um, you just have to outwork them. And then the other thing I would say is just to have a unique angle and viewpoint. I mean, there's just so much noise that's out there today. And that's particularly true for us and what we're building that if you just come with the exact same message and you kind of look like everybody else, it's pretty easy to get drowned out. So you have to have something that's a new point. You have to surround yourself with good people. You have to work hard. It's no more magical than that. You mentioned the unique viewpoint. Is there anything in the past few months that you've had a very unique perspective viewpoint on that a lot of people think goes against the norm, but you truly believe in? Um, I wouldn't say it's particularly like recent, but it's something that's been building for me personally, and I think for us as an organization for a long time, and that is just the utilization of data in a more quant-driven approach to the private markets. So you've seen that unfold over many, many decades in the public markets with fantastic success. But in the private markets, it really hasn't unfolded for a number of reasons. And there's a lot of nuances there. And I had had the, the long belief that data and, and a quant approach was really going to be the future of the private markets. And that was going to be where a lot of innovation was going to occur over the next 20 years. And so when we reach out to people to talk to them about what we're doing and bring that up as a concept, a lot of people give you kind of a funny look because they're not convinced. Um, but the thing about it is it's very memorable because that's something that no one else is saying or very few people are saying. So I'm really excited about that concept. Yeah, I can't wait to dive into Circle Up here in a minute, hear more about that. You mentioned your ability to outwork. Let's rewind a bit, understand what the young Jake was like. Did you develop that work ethic from a young age? Uh, yeah, I did actually. Um, so I grew up um, in Colorado, in like rural Colorado, and uh, grew up on a on a ranch actually. And like one of the things, um, you know, very thankful to my parents for was they always had me doing hard work. Um, so all summer, even from the time I was a young kid, I was doing work and oftentimes 
either making no money or, or, or very little money. And a lot of it was like very uh, manual in nature and, you know, pretty um, exhausting at times. Um, and, and at times I hated it um, because my parents were like kind of really pushing me and forcing me to go out and do it. Um, but over time, I, I really began to enjoy it and just instilled in me this um, focus on always, always working hard and, and, um, and actually trying to find new work that was particularly rewarding. And, and I always found that the most rewarding work was when you were pursuing something that was really interesting to you and moving the, the ball forward and moving the needle on getting to that ultimate goal. It wasn't actually the, the, the goal itself that got me excited. It was, you know, the, the, the journey along the way. And so it, it really went back to, you know, when I was very young and has, has endured until today. New work that is interesting. I, I'm really curious about that. How does that lead from the ranch hand to then working traditional financial markets? Yeah, great question. So I really had three different jobs in my career. So I've been working you know, since the early 2000s and a lot of people bounce around from job to job and I've really only had three jobs. Um, I always look for jobs um, that I was really excited about that was an opportunity to just learn a lot and where I thought that that was a, a multi-year endeavor. Um, and I was always intrigued by um, the, the world of finance. Um, I don't know exactly why, but I was just, it was exciting to me in the early 2000s. Um, I had friends that were in investment banking or um, just going into equity research or private equity. And I, I just got excited by that concept. So my first real job was at Lehman Brothers, which at the time was a really exciting place to be. It was before Lehman blew up, obviously. Um, and, you know, the stock was going from like 15 to 150 and Dick Fold was like a kind of a celebrity. I was actually in, um, interestingly though, and, and um, kind of funny, one of the least interesting parts of Lehman, I was working in, in cash management, which basically meant that anytime we got a, a uh, new piece of business at Lehman where you were working with a company and they had a lot of cash, we would manage it. And so we had people like Research in Motion back when everybody had a BlackBerry and Apple, um, before Apple was what it, what it is today, where we were managing their money. We were putting into things that were very uninteresting, things like auction rate securities and commercial paper. What I, what I quickly learned um, as one of the people on the team that was responsible for bringing new counts to our business was that the last thing that an entrepreneur wanted to talk about was commercial paper and auction rate securities and how to manage their cash better. Um, and so that, that was like a pretty um, interesting lesson where I just focused on being much more of a generalist and trying to focus in on what was really the most interesting things to the entrepreneur. So Lehman at the time had a lot of really powerful um, you know, parts of the business that the entrepreneurs didn't want to talk to. So it was the equity research groups. It was the M&A bankers. It was other companies. And so I completely kind of ignored the core business of cash management and focused in on 
um, the, the things that were, were attractive to the entrepreneurs. What the unfortunate part of that was for me was that the core business that I was working on was like the least interesting thing. <laughs> so um, I really wanted to get away from that. And then that was kind of the start of my journey into the private markets where just through, honestly, good luck, I got into um, a, a division of Blackstone, um, a, a firm called Park Hill, which is specializing in advising private equity firms, hedge funds, real estate firms on raising money. And it was a, it was a really exciting opportunity for me because at the time, you know, private equity in the you know, 2006, 2007 timeframe was, was just on fire. This was when Steve Schwartzman was on the cover of Forbes and was um, coined, he was coined the you know the new king of Wall Street and and that was a really interesting time and so I felt uh, very very lucky to get that opportunity and and had a great um, run there for nine years um, where it was a tremendous training ground I, I learned a lot. But eventually, I wanted to, to do something else where um, I was actually building something. And there were some other things that I was specifically looking for um, that brought me to, to circle up where I am today. Yeah, I mean, you ended up as managing director for the Park Hill Group. You mentioned luck a lot of times there. I know there was a lot more than luck that went into that. What do you think really set yourself apart that you ended up being the managing director? Oh, man. Uh, you know, I was, listen, it was, it was a great place. Um, in the sense I was just surrounded by really, really fantastic people. The people that I worked with, that I worked for, still very close with, close with them today. They were just tremendous colleagues and mentors. And I just learned a lot um, and um, felt really, really fortunate in that regard. You know, that's a big, um, big thing I've always been focused on is being surrounded by people that are, that are really talented. And if you're surrounded by people who are really talented, good things are going to happen for you. So um, that was a big part of it. Uh, another big part of it was just getting really good at helping big private equity firms raise money. Um, and a lot of that, too, was um, being uh, associated with really great private equity firms. So when you're flying around the country with people like Steve Schwartzman, and Bennett Goodman from GSO or Jeff Aronson from Centerbridge or Mike Mose from VMG, which is a fantastic consumer PE firm here in, in the Bay Area. And you have those people that are with you, it makes the whole job a lot easier. And so um, those were some of the key components to, to making that work so well. You mentioned the importance of surrounding yourself with talented people. When you said that, who's the first person who came to mind being the most talented person you've been around? Oh man, I, that's a tough question. I don't know if I could if I could say that without feeling bad because whatever I say, I'm the, I'm the regret because I'm just not say somebody else's name that I also would want to say. Um, I I don't know if I could narrow that down to to one person. I mean. There's been a lot of different people I've been really um, amazed by throughout my career that have just been talented in, in different ways. So let's do this. I was afraid you were going to answer the question this way. Thinking about these people, you don't need to say their names. What key attributes do they possess that left you saying, wow, 
this person is truly talented and I'm lucky to be around them? Yeah. So, um, that's a good question. Uh, a couple of, um, skill sets come to mind. Some people I'm just absolutely amazed by their work output. So my, my partner, um, Ryan is the CEO and the founder of Circle Up. Um, he just has tremendous output. I, I've just never seen someone who can get so much work done in such a short period of time that, that always just, just, um, shocks and amazes me. Other people I'm, um, really impressed with their ability to be really, really analytical and think about a problem in a very, very analytical and scientific way. So some people are more artistic in, in, in how they think about solving a problem. Other people can think about it in, in a way where you're using very advanced techniques, thinking about the probabilities of outcomes and, and being very sophisticated about it. Other people, I'm, I've been really impressed by their ability to just put deals together um, and, and continuously succeed. You know, making um, a transaction happen, particularly when there's a lot of uncertainty in that transaction, is, is really challenging. And that takes a very specific skill set. Skill set. Um, and I've, I've been fortunate enough to work with some people that incredibly talented there. Another talent that I like is um, somebody who can take any concept, no matter how complex, and explain it in a very eloquent and crisp way. That's something that I've, I've really um, I've really been impressed by various folks that I've, I've worked with. I'd love to continue the conversation off the call. Here are some specifics on some of those people. But you mentioned your desire to build something while you were at Park Hill. You, you took yeah. a leap here to go to Circle Up, joining a startup. What is that leap like? And, and what was the final decision that, that made you go all in and do it? Oh, man. At the time, it was very scary. I have to admit, it was very scary. The, the Park Hill seat um, and Blackstone seat was an amazing seat. It was, it was a great place. It was plush in many ways and fantastic people. And it was one of the types of places where when you sent somebody an email, you would almost always get a response because you were coming from a place that everybody knew and you know, um, held in high regard. Um, going to uh, a, a place that a lot of people hadn't heard of at the time, not from what a lot of people are starting to hear about us now, but at the time it was less well-known, was was pretty scary. The, the reason why I decided to do it was in my old seat, it was really about advising people and building a business, although I never really built one myself. And, and that always kind of bothered me, or I had never been a part building one myself. That, that really bothered me. So I really wanted to make the transition from advising different, um, different firms to trying to be on the inside and, and put one together. And do that from from scratch, or as close to scratch as I could. I also wanted to just get a lot of those skill sets that go along with being an operator when you're solving a lot of different complex problems, where those different problems change every single day. And a big part of the thesis for me also was a deep desire to be focused on a more technology-driven approach, which 
in, in my mind at the time, and still is in my mind, going to be what's going to drive forward the private markets in the next 20 years. And so uh, that was the calculus for me when I was making the decision. The picture of who you are is being painted a lot clearer now based on that answer. You mentioned how scary it is leaving your job, joining a new startup. How do you assess a risk and end up making that decision? Oh man, good question. Um, so one thing that um, was was nice for me is um, I, I tend to be somewhat risk adverse, if, um, believe it or not. Um, one thing that was was fairly nice for me is I had been in a seat long enough that I could um, have the confidence to take the risk. Um, and I don't know if that's the right way to think about it, to be honest. I, I'm, I'm much more impressed with people that um, are willing to take a risk um, when everything is on the line. But in my position, when I made this decision, um, I was at a point in my career where I felt like I was stable enough and I could always go back. So the, the risk was decreased. Um, a big part of the decision also for me was the people. So I, I always think about the people, not only from a perspective of how good are the people. And, you know, I'd always try to be a, a really thoughtful judge of, of people's talents and, and capabilities, but also just what I like working with them every single day. You know, this, this is, um, you know, you know, a place just like any, anywhere else. Like you have to go work with your colleagues every single day and you have to interact. So if you don't like them, you know, they give you a talent, but if you don't like them, you don't get along. And that's not a very fun way to spend your life. So it, it was the people, it was my willingness to take the risk. And it was also just the, the size of the overall opportunity, I would say. Um, and, and, but the unproven nature of that. So could I have um, skills that were relevant to my, my, my previous job and the current job where I could apply them directly to the new role in a way that um, in a, an opportunity that was unproven, but the, the outcome overall over the long term could be massive. I just got off the phone with the CEO of a data company, and it's really making me think about the conversation I was having with him about options and how he views optionality. When, when you're looking at a potential problem or a change, how do you view the different options and how do you take that input to assess your decision? Um, that's a really good question, Sean. Um, and this is specifically just focused on when you're making a decision about where you're going to work or where you're going to spend your time or, or is it anything? Framework in general. I want to know how you assess those different options, whether it be in changing careers or looking at different companies you guys might be allocating money to. Yeah, so I, I like to think in a world of, of probabilities um, whenever possible rather than certainties. So, um, you know, any even if you make the best decision, sometimes that best decision might not turn out to work or be right because you can have bad luck that you can't control. But generally, I like to think of what is the decision that you can make that has the best probability of being successful. And you also have to determine what success actually means. 
So in the context of your career, what are you optimizing for? Are you optimizing for bliss or are you optimizing for your ultimate financial outcome? So if you're optimizing for ultimate financial outcome, then um, there's certain jobs that you just would never take because maybe you don't have enough ownership in the business or maybe the market isn't big enough or whatever. And so you have to think through all those probabilities um, and, and optimize based on uh, what your ultimate objective is. So that's how I generally try to think about it. I think about like probabilities for success and what my ultimate objective is and, and just try to get as scientific as I possibly can when oftentimes you don't have ideal or perfect information. What are you optimizing for? For me, I've always just been like in the, the pursuit of um, doing something really meaningful um, and, and massive. So in, in the private markets, um, it's easy to get lost in um, the pursuit of making a lot of money. Um, but there's a lot of places you can do that. So what really intrigues me is doing something that, that changes how the private markets work. Um, and in the meantime, you know, we're a very mission-driven organization. So I like to be anchored in that mission too, which is to help a lot of entrepreneurs and, and give them capital and resources to be successful. So I haven't found anything at least it's come across um, on my desk that has been able to, to do that as much as the current seat I'm in. Speaking about the current seat you're in, we've mentioned Circle up a few times. I'm sure the listeners are dying just to hear a broad level overview. What it is you guys do over there? Yeah, so we are a investment platform that's focused on the private markets that's specifically focused on consumer retail. At the emerging stage, so companies that are one to 15 million in revenue that are growing really fast, that are in all of the categories that you think about as a consumer that you consume every day. So it's everything you eat, you drink, you put on your skin, you feed to your pets, you give to your kids. Um, we're focused on uh, a part of the market that we think is really interesting. Because it's a massive, massive market. It's $15 trillion piece of the global economy where historically that market has been dominated by really big CPG firms, people like Unilever or Kraft Heinz or Campbell's, big companies that just don't innovate really. They don't come up with new products. If you look at the average CPG big firm, they spend about a percent and a half other revenue on R&D. So they're just not coming up with new products. And what's interesting, if you look closely, is that in every single subcategory of consumer, there's a massive shift in market share that's happening, moving towards small innovative brands. And you probably recognize this in your personal life. You'll, you'll notice that a lot of brands that you're buying, I'm sure, Sean, are products that um, you didn't get as a kid or your, your parents didn't buy for you. Um, what's happening as a result of that market share shift is the big CPGs, um, many of which are, you know, been around for many decades, some cases over a century, are in panic mode because they're seeing this market share go away and they're having to react by buying a lot of these companies. So there's a tremendous, tremendous amount of M&A that's happening in CPG and retail today. 
But what's shocking about all of this is just the absolute shortage of capital that is going into emerging CPG and retail. So we are building an investment platform that's powered by data to target that part of the market. And you're probably asking, well, why does that matter? Why do you have to have data to do all that? So what, what we believe matters um, and why data is required is because this market is incredibly inefficient. So unlike tech, where a lot of the greatest companies are in a handful of a couple of cities, there is a ton of geographic dispersion in consumer. These companies are all over the country. You might find them in Madison, Wisconsin, or Portland, Oregon, instead of find them in Palo Alto. The other thing is they're incredibly capital efficient. They don't raise a lot of money. So because they don't raise a lot of money, they might raise a million dollars before getting acquired, for becoming profitable. It doesn't make a lot of sense as a multi-hundred million dollar fund to fly to Madison to write a million dollar check if you have to evaluate a hundred other companies along the way. The cost to write that check is just too high. So we're utilizing data science and a lot of data, which is a really interesting component of what we do to go out and find these companies in a more efficient way. We also think there's some really interesting implications for the entrepreneurs uh, because of our approach as well um, that, that we think are particularly compelling. Yeah, no, it's so fascinating what you guys are doing. I would love if you dive a little deeper on the actual data and the technology that you guys have behind that data. Mm-hmm. For sure. So the technology we have is called Helio. Helio is a technology we've been building for many years. Half of our team is data science and data engineering. So we have about 60 people that work at Circle Up. And unlike a typical private markets firm where people are investors, half of our team is data scientists, data engineering, people with PhDs from great institutions or backgrounds working with tech companies or quant public markets firms. And um, we're building this technology that is a knowledge graph of the consumer space. So we track about 1.4 million consumer companies across hundreds of sources of data, um, many, many different dimensions of data, trillions of cells of data. And we have a big infrastructure around that that goes out into the world and identifies consumer companies. Once those companies are identified, we know where to look for the data. We start to collect, ingest, transform, story time series, all of that data in a crisp set of distributed data tables that we can then use to make predictions. We have, on top of all of that data, many predictions that we make about companies. So we make predictions on things like the financials of the company, how much revenue a company has, how fast that revenue is growing, the quality of the brand of a business. The distribution of a business. Are they sold in one Whole Foods or are they sold in 400? Do they just get picked up by Costco? Does that even matter? We've got models that look at the category and models that look at the product. And we continuously build new models and improve on the models and the predictions that we already have. There's a couple of things that make this market just absolutely fantastic for using data. I mean, I've seen a number of other private markets firms and other categories try to use data and they say they're using data, but I always scratch my head a little bit because I wonder what type of data they're using. The brilliant thing about consumer is that in consumer, the business models are all basically the same. So unlike tech where you're maybe looking at a crypto business and a cybersecurity business and a marketplace, 
very different business models. And consumer, you're playing a very similar game of chess every single time. So when you do that, you can compare companies side by side very effectively in machine learning. That's one piece. The other piece is there is an explosive amount of data out there about these companies. So if you think about any consumer company that you have at home in your fridge or in your pantry, those companies have a tremendous amount of information out there about where the products sold, how many SKUs there are, price points per SKU, what all the end consumers think about the product, the product itself, nutritional information, ingredient deck, industry subdynamics, etc. That data is really powerful because it's very directly connected to how the company is actually doing. And that's that's amazing. And we think that's really special. The really hard part about that data is you can't easily get it and make it meaningful. So you have to go out to a lot of different sources, collect a lot of different data in different forms, and just absolutely brute force the combination of that data to create a mosaic that you can use. And so that's what we've been building. But now that we have that information, it is absolutely magical and powerful in utilizing that to make investments in a different way than a typical private equity firm would. Yeah, this is so fascinating. I know you guys aren't going to share your secret sauce, obviously, but are there any key similarities uh, across some of the most successful companies you guys have worked with? Well, I would say yes, um, in that they're typically growing really fast. Um, that's one thing that, that... So is that growth in terms of number of doors or is that velocity indoor? Well, it's often growth indoors. Um, we have some data to indicate that velocity actually matters a little bit less than you might think, but there's other types of growth as well. So you can think about the amount of heat that a brand has around it. So if you wanted to try to quantify brand, you can think about how many people are following a brand across all different forms of social and, and media, how fast that's growing, how many people are engaging, sentiment in that engagement. That's pretty powerful information. If you think about it, that's a great leading indicator of success and brand. So we can use data like that in, in pretty interesting ways. The other thing that I would say is it really matters depending on which category you're focused on. So certain things that matter for pet really don't matter in beauty. And you have to utilize uh, some pretty sophisticated techniques and complex models to be able to put the companies into the right subcategory classification to be able to have um, a, a right framework to compare the companies side by side on the dimensions that matter. So, so growth are uh, growth is really important. What what we try to do is think about all of the different um, signals you could have across the trillions of points of data that we have, and then try to quantify those signals and anchor that on a future growth, not on what growth is happening today, but what on what growth is likely to happen tomorrow. So, how many doors will a company have one year in the future? Or how much revenue will a company have one year in the future? So we're trying to make those types of predictions. And the key to be able to do that is you have to have a very big, clean, long data set where you can quantify those factors going back many years. 
I can only imagine the amount of dirty data you guys are combing through over there. I would love to dive into some specific companies you guys have worked with. And I'd love to start with a company called Liquid IV. You, can you just give sure. a little overview what Liquid IV is and then how you guys have been able to work with them? Yeah, so um, Liquid IV is a, is a company that, that we are invested in and we are really excited about. I'm glad you asked about that company in particular. Um, this is a company that if you haven't tried the product, um, I know you have a, a lot of athletes that listen to your, your podcast. It's a fantastic product for athletes, but also just as a general lifestyle brand that's focused on hydration. So it's a, a platform um, for oral rehydration therapy that makes a product that is a very specific combination of salt, sugar, and potassium that comes in a pouch, plastic pouch. So when you add that to a bottle of water, it's like drinking three bottles of water. And the reason why that works is when you uh, add an ingredient to this combination of other ingredients, your, your body absorbs things into the bloodstream at just a much faster rate. It's a company that um, we found using Helio, our technology. No one on any of the investment team here, and we are very deep consumers, so we know a lot of companies, have heard of the company. So it was a completely new company. And we found it because we saw that in distribution, it was growing very fast from afar. And it also had just some tremendous brand metrics around it that we like to track. So we reached out to this company. They were small at the time, but growing very fast. By the time we convinced them to take our money, they had doubled in size just a few months later. And one year into it, um, they've grown without giving specific metrics around the revenue that's having the company by a lot. Um, so this is a company that would have been not on our radar, even as a, a group that's specifically focused on emerging consumer when we found it, let alone on a middle market consumer PE firm, which you know, is a very big space. Um, and utilizing data and, and Helio find it in, in you know, a very unique and differentiated way. We're really pleased with how that company's growing. You mentioned you found them early on, and you guys typically write between one and $15 million checks, correct? Uh, the, no, the checks that we usually write are, uh, are on average uh, on the equity side because we have both we have a credit product and we have an equity product. On the equity side are on average $1.6 So very small. The companies that we're focused on are usually one to $15 million revenue. Gotcha. My apologies so, there. No, it's okay. So you mentioned you find them early on. How early do specific companies end up on your radar? I mean, in certain cases, before they even have revenue. So we have algorithms that identify these companies, and we have a variety of ways of doing that. And we may find a company when they launch a website that haven't started selling in retail. Where we really get focused on investing in companies is when they have at least a million in revenue. The reason why we tend to like that, and that's particularly particular on the equity side, is there's just more data to look at. They're, they're selling in a national retailer. They have 100,000 consumers that are buying their product. There's a lot of information out there in social and in the press. So there's just a lot of different ways for us to get data on those companies where we can start to see the patterns. Got you. So how, when you're interested in investing in a company, how much are you weighing the data as opposed to when you're sitting down with the founders? 
I mean, if, if the data is saying one thing and you're sitting down with a group of founders that you're really questioning, how do you guys weigh that? In, uh, it depends on the strategy. So we have uh, a couple of different strategies here. In our credit strategy, the data is incredibly important. And the decision around whether or not to get a loan is very systematic and almost like math equation in nature. Um, on the discretionary equity side, there are some heuristics that come in. So that may boil down to the horsepower of the founder. So we tend to look for founders that have a lot of horsepower and are really, really talented. And that's something that we have found is hard to determine with data. As we move forward into the future, our approach will be much more systematic in nature and utilizing data as much as possible as the driving factor behind this. Another company that you guys have worked with, I saw, is a company called NutPods. I would love to yep. know how they came up on your radar and then what you've seen out of them recently. Yeah, so this is a company that, um, if you haven't tried it or, or don't know the brand, is a company that makes a creamer for coffee, but is plant-based. So if you know Coffee Mate, that's a brand that's been out there forever. And if you ever look at the ingredient deck of that company, you probably won't want to drink it again because you can put it on a shelf and come back 20 years later and I don't think it's changed. And who knows what the ingredients even are. Uh, this is a product that's made with coconuts and nuts and has much healthier ingredients. It's a brand we found in a very similar way, way to how we would have identified with Grady. Very compelling distribution metrics, very compelling brand metrics, where we saw that within that category, the company just really stood out a lot more than other companies on the dimensions that we believe are important for that category data than the rest of the category. And we reached out to the CEO, Madeline Hayden, who is just absolutely fantastic and we're really impressed with what she was building. And so we, we managed to be fortunate enough to, to invest with, with her in, in that company. And it's grown very substantially since our investment about one year ago. You mentioned they're plant-based. What other food trends are you seeing in 2019? Oh man, there's there's a lot um, that are particularly um, hot these days. I mean, plant-based is one that continues to um, be really topical. There's different trends that seem to be on fire these days, like the keto trend, uh, where you see a lot of different brands that are doing really well there. Probiotics is another big trend. Natural beauty is an area that we think is just really ripe for um, major disruption. If you look at all the big incumbents in beauty, a lot of the products are full of just chemicals. And if you look at those chemicals, you would be shocked at how many of them are pretty bad for you as the consumer. And the consumer is waking up to that. The problem historically around natural beauty and natural personal care has been the performance is just not that great. So if you look at like natural cosmetics, you put the lipstick on and, you know, five minutes later, it's falling off your face. And so we are focused on brands that have really powerful natural ingredients that perform also well. 
and that are very well branded. And we've seen a lot of interesting brands there, a couple of which are in a portfolio that have really been benefiting from that trend. So fascinating. I would love to get your take. Say a brand new company is listening, they're about to start out, say they're in the nutritional bar space. Just mm-hmm. a few key things you would recommend that say, hey, if you guys are going to be successful, these should be top of the list for you to be focusing on right now. Oh, man. Um, I would say the main thing that really matters is that you have to have a value prop that really resonates with the consumer that's very unique and it resonates with the consumer in a way that matters. Um, if, if you don't have that, if you're just another RX bar, forget about it. You're, you're not going to be successful. So you better just have a really interesting value prop. And by the way, consumers today are really focused on authenticity. So you better have a value prop that's authentic as well because consumers are really good at sniffing out when something's not, not authentic. So I would say that is a really good way to think about the business. Um, another thing is we've seen a variety of different businesses um, that have tried to be all online or just focus 100% on brick and mortar. A lot of the businesses that we are um, seeing do well are masters of both uh, online, online and brick and mortar. So they're really omni-channel in, in nature and have figured out a way to be successful in both both of those formats. And the other thing I would say is that uh, CAC is becoming the new rent. And what I mean by that is if you are relying on spending a lot of money on social media to get your message out there, that is quickly going to be a losing game for you. So you have to find a way to get an authentic following um, without spending a bunch of money on Instagram ads. That's so interesting. So you guys have seen a lot of data behind paid influencers versus grassroots? Um, I would say that's not an area that we're, we're particularly focused on today. They yes. theoretically could be. But I would just say we've seen a lot of um, failure where different brands do not manage that aspect of this as well. Gotcha. Man, Jake, this has been so fascinating hearing your story, how you learn a lot about Circle Up. I'm curious, what's next for you guys in Circle Up? Yeah, so the next big initiative for us will be um, on the equity side of what we do, moving more towards a truly quantitative systematic approach. So if you look at how things have unfolded in the public markets, there have been some just absolutely amazing firms that have done fantastically well. Firms like AQR or Renaissance Technologies or Two Sigma and Shaw that use a quantitative approach in the 80s and 90s and said, you know, using your gut and picking stocks just is a fool's errand. And, um, you got to think in a world of probabilities, have a true information advantage and spread that information advantage across a larger number of companies and also have world-class execution in executing those investments. We think that today that is now possible in private markets and it's possible in our space because of what we are doing with data where we, as I mentioned earlier, have a big enough, clean enough, long enough data set that we can identify different factors that predict 
future growth and construct portfolios in the way that a quant or an hedge fund would. And then just have a really good execution to be able to build that. And so in the future, um, you'll be hearing more from us on uh, utilizing that type of approach, which is pretty much unheard of in, in private markets and, um, and building around that concept. Yeah, I'm excited to continue and follow the success you guys are having over there at Circle Up. I know you're pretty private socially behind the scenes. Where can the listeners best stay connected with Circle Up and what you guys have going on? Yeah, so um, I personally don't put out a lot of content, but we as an organization uh, put out a, a lot of content. So we have a, a blog called The Upround, which is a great place to find different um, posts on a wide variety of topics that we are talking about. Um, everything from data science to consumer to private markets. So that's a great place. Um, Ryan um, has a, a Twitter uh, account that is um, pretty well liked and well followed by a lot of different um, folks across the industry in all of those different areas. We put out a good amount of content in Medium, so you can find more information about us there. We're on podcasts periodically, so um, I would just say search around for us and you won't have a hard time finding it. Yeah, no, I actually love the blog you guys release. I'm always excited when you put out a new one. I think the content and the value you provide there is great. Ryan is an awesome follow. We'll be sure to have all that linked up in the show notes. But Jake, I can't thank you enough for joining us on What Got You There. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. If you're listening to this podcast, there's a good chance that your physical fitness is one of the most important aspects of your life. So why do you keep wearing those old workout shorts that are falling apart? Or even worse, when you're at the gym and something smells a little ripe? If that's the case, it's time to turn in those old shorts for a new pair of 10,000 shorts. 10,000 makes it super simple to purchase your new favorite workout apparel. My new favorite short is their distance short, which is super comfortable, lightweight, and perfect for all of my fitness goals. I can say without a doubt that 10,000 shorts are the most comfortable workout shorts I've ever worn. Like myself, 10,000 is obsessed with nailing the fit with the highest quality materials and construction. For the listeners of What Got You There, 10,000 is offering 20% off your first order of shorts. Yes, that's 20% off. When you check out, make sure you request their one-in, one-out kit. They do this super cool thing when you can send in your old gear you have for recycling and you'll get 10% off your next order. Head to www.10,000.cc forward slash WGYT to receive 20% off your order. And if for some reason you don't love them, they have your back with free shipping, free exchanges, and free returns. A few months ago, my body was experiencing a ton of pain, and that's when my friend and former podcast guest, Noah Olson, turned me on to Pure Spectrum CBD. Their CBD products have been tremendous in relieving a lot of the pain in my body. Their products are pure because everything they make is tested every time for quality, consistency, and efficiency. They're 100% organic, third-party tested. There's a 100% guarantee, and they're THC-free. If you want to receive 10% off the entire site, head to PureSpectrumCBD.com and enter code WGYT. That's 10% off the entire website at PureSpectrumCBD.com with code WGYT. 
For the What Got You There listeners who love to travel and want to see the world, listen up. We've teamed up with Globekick, who make it affordable to enjoy peak life experiences with like-minded people from around the world. Globekick expertly designs, curates, and scouts global adventures for you to join. Each trip lasts one week and is designed to balance their unique blend of adventure, culture immersion, and relaxation. Globekick has some epic adventures planned, such as cage diving with great white sharks in Cape Town, South Africa, dog sledding and northern light chasing in Norway, and to see the rest, head to globekick.com. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then make sure to stop at globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.